0: Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage Program, LawPay. The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March 2020, when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There's been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as the necessity to quickly change the way some things have always been done. That's hard for lawyers. And as part of a special series, the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered is asking lawyers about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and my guest today is Howard Bashman, an appellate lawyer who also writes at How Appealing, a popular blog that has been in existence since 2002. Howard, welcome to the show.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: I love it. You've been writing since 2002, and your blog is every bit as useful now as it was when you started and just as popular. How did you get the idea to do it? What prompted you to, to do it?
1: Well, thank you so much. I had been writing an appellate column for the legal newspaper in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is where I, the region in which I practice law, since uh, December of. 2000. So so I've been writing that uh, for over 20 years now. And there had been times when issues would come to my attention that perhaps would not merit a full month's treatment in in that monthly column that that I thought people might be interested in hearing about. And uh, around that same time, someone brought to my attention the existence of law blogs in general, and and in in particular, the Volokh conspiracy written by a law professor Mm -hmm. at UCLA. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eugene
0: Volokh, yes.
1: Correct. Correct. And, And so... I was uh, hesitant to even want to take a look at that because I figured you know who who cares what law professors are opining about but uh, eventually after numerous requests to look at it from a colleague of mine at my law firm I did take a look at it and it actually was very interesting and that blog continues in existence today and remains very interesting so so I thought uh, maybe this platform would give me a way to discuss appellate issues with others that are interested in it other than that monthly column that I was writing. And and so I did a quick search to see if there were any other appellate blogs in existence at the time and did not find any. And uh, and I decided to give it a shot. And uh, to my amazement, it did catch on and continues to be in existence today. I, I think uh, in an interview on C-SPAN, Justice Kagan says that it's one of the blogs that she reads regularly. I was invited to speak at a Fourth Circuit conference uh, that that was taking place uh, in the Fourth Circuit. And they are Regular annual speaker, this chief, the chief justice of the United States, who uh, was already John Roberts at that time, and I bumped into him at a reception, and he said, "Howard, if you're if you're here, who's writing your blog?" Uh, <laughs> and, and it was just shocking to me that, uh, that that people at these levels are looking at it. So I, I try to put that out of mind when I write on it.
0: Well, I think that is a very good question because you post like you'll put up eight posts a day. And on the weekends, do you do it by yourself or do you get help? The entries
1: are all my responsibility, so, so that that is all done by me. But uh, in, in terms of help, I do have a uh, a loyal group of readers who will email me, and uh, and now with the advent of Twitter for many years, uh, they can contact me that way. And and also, I follow a number of folks on there that uh, are are in. The, the news industry covering legal developments. And, and so uh, th- that's how I keep track, in addition to trying to visit the websites of each of the federal, the regional federal appellate courts each day or every other day to see if there are any interesting new decisions.
0: Okay. Let's switch gears for a minute and talk about your appellate practice. Um, I am curious during the past year, during the pandemic, have things been that different for you? as an appellate lawyer, because I think for a long time, appellate lawyers already were working from home. I'm not sure if you were, but it's kind of a solitary, in some ways, it's kind of a solitary pursuit, at least in the writing process.
1: No, that, that's true. So just to take a step back to the larger picture, I, I became a solo appellate practitioner in February of 2004. And my office, I, I do have an office that's outside of the home, and it's located five minutes away in the in the neighboring town and so i had not been predominantly working from home except when necessary of course uh, s- sometimes the legal profession unfortunately does require one to work nights and and weekends and and so uh, from time to time it might be more convenient for me to continue working on a project from home instead of heading back to the office but but principally up until everything shut down just about a year ago from now uh i had been working in the office predominantly five days a week minimum. And so when things did shut down, that that did result in a major change for me, which meant uh, instead of working in my office with the uh, things that I had around that that I would need, such as the postage meter and and my fancy printer and all of my supplies, uh, I started working from home, uh, which is where my wife had already been Working in in her job uh, as as a writer and uh, and the weekends almost exactly a year ago we had to uh, pick up our son who was a third year law student at NYU School of Law uh, which had just shut down for what they thought might be a short period of course he ended up finishing his uh, his third year and graduating from home and so that that was something of a large change but but as you had said uh, the the practice of appellate law tends to involve reading and writing and researching and and those are things that uh, don't principally require you to be anywhere other than at your office or near a computer with an internet connection and and so in, in large measure those things had stayed the same now in in pennsylvania which is where i practice and i handle appeals in both the federal appellate court which is the third circuit and the state appellate courts of Pennsylvania, the state appellate courts immediately began entering blanket extensions of all due dates that that lasted from that point in March when everything started to shut down through essentially the middle of may and uh, and so there were there were there was a two month period right there where nothing was due, and it was unclear if that meant that uh, trial courts didn't have to do their own work in terms of the judges there in, in issuing opinions and matters that were submitted for decision. Uh, so, so there was a great deal of uncertainty originally, and uh, and I wrote a column, I think it appeared probably in in April or or May of last year, in which I wanted to make the point and did make the point that that the coronavirus pandemic should not grind all appellate proceedings to a halt. Because unlike cases going to trial, where, where perhaps you have to be there in person, and I, and I know that we've seen some efforts at uh, doing those remotely recently, but but uh, traditionally, you have to be there in person. Uh, for, for the appellate work, you can do that from wherever you're located, as I had demonstrated to myself for the initial 14 years of my solo practice uh, in my office working on appeals while my co-counsel or trial counsel or referring counsel or the client were, were in other locations.
0: I get the sense that for a lot of litigators, this has been tough because you said there is some uncertainty and business is just, real, it's slowing down. Do you get the sense it's that way for the appellate practice too? Because as you said, you can do it remotely and its writing, but I mean, no, nevertheless, I feel like the trial work itself is getting pushed back because most people don't want to do telephone debts, for instance. And then, uh, you know, it's uh, people may not be, you can just keep churning, churning, churning. So do you notice a difference in the appellate practice with, with business?
1: To prepare for today's podcast recording, I, I did take a look back at the prior year of my work life to, mm-hmm. to see uh, what I was up to and, of course, uh, to get... My taxes uh, mm. together. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I had to look and see how how last year was financially, and, and so I can answer your question in a couple of different ways. Uh, the, the good news is that that things eventually did pick right back up in in the appellate practice that I have. So that over the past year, I ended up arguing five appeals remotely over this same video setup that, that we're looking at each other on now as we record the audio of this podcast. And uh, and the Pennsylvania state appellate courts did begin holding oral arguments remotely using either video or telephone. And uh, although the criteria to have a case be argued became a little bit more stringent, uh, it, it appears that in effect, if you took the trouble to ask for it, They would give it to you, Mm. so so that's in in the cases that I was handling, where we wanted to have oral argument, or if I was on the winning side, where the other side wanted oral argument. uh, In all of those cases, oral argument was uh, you know did did end up occurring by request of one party or the other, Uh, and and those tended to go very smoothly. Uh, In in fact, uh, when when everything shut down, I had just argued a case about a week before that on on March the third of twenty twenty. And I had two more oral arguments scheduled for that month in front of the same Pennsylvania Intermediate Appellate Court. One was an en-bank argument scheduled in front of nine judges. I think the date was going to be March 18th. But if that's not exactly correct, it was for the middle of March. And then I had a second oral argument coming up at the very end of that month before a three-judge panel. It it turned out that my uh, mid-March en-bank oral argument was rescheduled for June the 3rd. And and so... uh, That was essentially just a delay of three months, and that decision ended up coming out several weeks ago now, Uh, so so that was just decided. It was very different to argue in front of nine judges over the computer. And of course, as compared to an in-person oral argument, this court decided to do it the same way that the U.S. Supreme Court has been doing it, even though there was a video hookup so we could see the judges, Mm -hmm. the judges took turns one after the other asking their questions. And yet it went off totally without a hitch. And then as luck would have it, uh, on that day, June the 3rd of 2020, at at about 12.15 in the afternoon. One of these horrible summer storms came through mm, with a Derrico, mm. which is these sideways winds about fifty miles an hour, and and totally knocked out power in my entire region. Mm. Uh, and and so, if my oral argument had not been the first case that day, <laughs> you know, I, I probably would have been able to give it uh, because we didn't even get power back for thirty-two hours oh, after that. Uh, so there, there's definitely some luck involved uh, in arguing remotely, even though it is uh, in many ways may, way more convenience. So to get back to your overall question, things did eventually pick up and and in a combination between that fact and and the fact that uh, early last year I was fortunate to receive a a success payment in a matter that I'd worked on early in the year, it ended up for me not not being uh, a bad year overall. Uh, but but like you said, you know, the, the types of cases that are being heard on appeal now tend to be the ones that involve decisions by judges on legal issues as, as opposed to end-of-case decisions following a trial because those sorts of matters are not going to trial right now. So presumably, w- once we get back to that, it'll be busy again maybe later this year or early next year.
0: Well, I'm curious, in terms of the cost of a pretrial motion appeal or a verdict appeal, is it cost about the same or is the motion or or the appeal of a finding, does that usually cost less than if you're um, appealing a verdict?
1: I I think that that you're right that uh, post-trial appeals can be more work-intensive and and therefore end up costing more in general. But but, Mm. uh, they're there can be matters that involve complicated legal issues that are decided at at the pretrial stage that uh, can themselves sometimes be very complicated and uh, and so it's difficult to uh, to say that one category of appeals necessarily will result in a higher fee than another because as as you can imagine you know you might have a day or two trial of, of a case Uh, You could have a month-long trial, and obviously those two types of post-trial appeals you would think would would require uh, very different amounts of work to handle.
0: I think I've heard before that some appellate lawyers and judges will say it's not really about the oral arguments. It's really in the writing. There's not a lot that's decided in oral arguments. Do you have thoughts on that? Especially now, because, you know, yeah, what I'm hearing from appellate lawyers is, is that oral arguments are maybe not as enjoyable because there's just not as much back and forth between the court. But I, I'm wondering if is what do you have a, a take on that is maybe their minds are already made up from the writing before the hearing.
1: As an appellate advocate, my, my view is that it is very useful to hear from the judges if they have any concerns about either my position or the other side's position that can be explored during oral arguments. The Pennsylvania intermediate appellate courts tend to be very permissive in allowing oral argument. I've already described a little bit of that uh, mm-hmm. as to how it worked during the pandemic. But before the pandemic, all that you had to do was ask for it. Uh, and so that, that in a way, hasn't changed, even though you have to ask for it several more times during the pandemic. but Before the pandemic, you only had to ask for it once. Uh, now you have to ask for it several times in a row to get it. But the Pennsylvania state appellate courts had always been. Uh, very indulgent in allowing appellate oral argument, and I think that that's a good thing. By contrast, the Third Circuit, which is the federal appellate court having jurisdiction over Pennsylvania, is is among the federal appellate courts that hears oral argument the least of of all federal appellate courts across the nation. I'm not saying it's the very least, but but it's close. It, it's it's in that group that's uh, that's at the bottom, and I think that during the pandemic, the Third Circuit has cut back to a degree. On the number of cases that it's hearing or argument, in so that that percentage has gotten even smaller. Uh, so, so, if if you want to ask me, you know, do I think that uh, that after the pandemic, for example, we should keep doing this through the computer from my home office as compared to doing it in person? Which, which I think is a question that many people will be asking themselves who who are in this area of practice. I can save hours uh, making the the five step walk from my closet putting a suit on to to this computer uh, as as compared to getting in my car either driving to a trade station or driving directly into philadelphia and uh, and and so there certainly are huge savings in, in terms of the time and effort involved to get in front of the judges in, in having these things occur remotely and and the judges many of the judges are experiencing the same time savings as well uh, b- because these oral arguments tend to occur in centralized locations, whereas the judges can have their offices throughout the state near their homes but I think that something is lost uh, as a result of not being there in person and uh, and so i I hope that the thing that remains after the pandemic is is the increased ease of access to the oral arguments live themselves, either over the internet or, or through other means. But, but that's uh, to the extent possible, we can actually get back into the courtroom and, uh, and have these presentations occur in, in the way that they had in the past, which was largely in person.
0: Okay. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you some more about uh, your, your blog. We'll be right back. LawPay makes it easy to securely accept credit, debit, and e-check payments from anywhere. Because LawPay was developed specifically for the legal industry, your earned and unearned fees are properly separated, and your IOLTA account is protected against third-party debiting. To learn more about the only online payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, visit lawpay.com ABA. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Howard Bashman, an appellate lawyer who is also the person behind the popular law blog, How Appealing. So uh, tell me about your tips and how you find things. And I'm curious if you have Twitter lists. How do you dig?
1: <laughs> I, I do have a, uh, a Twitter list that is very helpful. And, is it private
0: uh, or do you have it, it public? Excellent
1: question. So, so uh, th- this this is a Twitter list that somehow I found one day when somebody added me to their Twitter list, and oh, okay. uh, and then and, and this is an appellate attorney who uh, practices, I, I believe, in the in the DC area, and so he he had already followed many of the sources that I find very useful to uh, to access on a regular basis, and uh, and then out of the blue one day. I go to refresh the uh, the entries on, on that Twitter list, and uh, and I get the notice that the account has gone private, uh, and and, and, oh, no. and so fortunately I I had uh, retained the the, uh, the the main Twitter information for this user, and, and so I contacted the person and I said, you know, do, do you mind? If I could follow you, because I find your Twitter list to be very helpful. And, and once somebody takes a list private, if if you're one of their followers, you can still access it. And so this particular Twitter list is is not publicly available anymore, but fortunately is still available mm. to uh, to me. But uh, to answer your question, uh, you know, beyond Twitter has has greatly changed many things w- with regard to being an appellate law blogger. There, there, there once was a time where if, if I understand what people were saying to me, they, they would rely on my blog to inform them of, of new newsworthy decisions. These days, as a result of the fact that so many legal journalists have their own Twitter feeds and, and these legal journalists, for, for their job, uh, you know, ha- have to stay on top of what's going on, in in all of these courts throughout the nation, they've they've gone ahead and subscribed through the Pacer portals to get notification of newsworthy cases, and and a lot of times the federal appellate courts will email word of those rulings bef- before the decisions are posted online at at the website, and and so it's a regular occurrence now for me to be learning about new decisions even before they're posted to a court's website as a result of folks like Zoe Tillman or, or Mike Scarcella of of the National Law Journal, tweeting about them, and and oftentimes they will upload copies of the decision to one of the services that that allow journalists to uh, put put up PDFs very easily. Uh, so so that that tends to be the way these mm-hmm. days that I'm learning of these things. Uh, but but I but I think that uh, folks still find the blog useful b- because if you're not on Twitter right at the time that those tweets come out, I, I think one of the differences between Twitter and and a blog is that at some point it becomes much more difficult on Twitter to, to see what was going on over the past week for example that it might be to scroll through a week's worth of entries at at my blog which I think is a little bit easier perhaps and so mm-hmm. uh, I think in that way and and others uh, th- that the blog still does serve does provide a useful service to people
0: well that's the thing about Twitter right is if is they say if a boat sails by on Twitter and you miss it, you don't know, right? Um, I'm curious too, do you read all the opinions you write about or do you tend just to, if it's coming from a, a, someone else's work, you just tend to go with what they were? How do you, do you read every opinion?
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm going to have to confess that the answer to that is is no, but I do try to read enough of an opinion to, to see if there's anything interesting in it. And then of course, to make sure that I'm accurately capturing what the decision says, which uh, from mm-hmm. time to time can be a challenging endeavor, and as uh, as an appellate practitioner myself, who is fortunate to represent parties that uh, have appellate decisions written about them in in resolving an appeal, I, I can appreciate the fact that uh, it can be difficult for someone who's not involved in a case to, to necessarily appreciate all the niceties when I see articles written about cases in which I was the attorney for a party. So that does help me try to become more sensitive to be, uh, careful. And I think that, uh, you know, not, not to, uh, speak about overarching goals, but when I started my blog as, as a largely unknown person on the national appellate scene, uh, one of my goals was uh, to to try to ensure that that as a result of reading what i'm writing here that that nobody would necessarily think worse of me than they had thought about me before they read it and and <laughs> and so that had kind of been my overarching goal in uh, in in doing the blog there there were from time to time disagreements with with readers uh, you know i, I had favored the change in the federal appellate rules that would allow people to cite to unpublished opinions. Uh, judge, then, then Judge mm-hmm. Kaczynski out of the Ninth Circuit was leading the effort to oppose that rule change. And it was, I guess you could say, uncomfortable perhaps to 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 have uh, such a, at least as of that point, a highly thought of and, and highly regarded judge not agree with you in, in a public way
0: Who was not afraid to speak publicly, (laughs) was not uncomfortable about speaking publicly compared to other uh, federal uh, appellate judges. And you mentioned something uh, really important, and that was being accurate when you're reading an opinion. And I'm curious, do you have any tips on getting to the heart of what's important in an opinion and getting it right? I think of the Obamacare decision and... Uh, The major news groups uh, got it wrong initially, and Scotus Blog got it right because they're very good at what they do, and they recognize it's more important to be right than to be first. So what's your advice uh, for people that haven't practiced appellate law as long as you have, and for journalists too, getting to what's important and being accurate in an opinion?
1: I think that with so many things uh, at the appellate level, it tends to be in many respects a group effort beginning with the judges who are themselves writing the decision i've been fortunate uh, over the past several years to be involved with the appellate judges education institute's uh, ajei conferences f- from year to year and that's a continuing education presentation that is done by that organization together with the aba that, that occurs once a year and, and Every year, they tend to have a legal writing teacher come in and speak not only to the attorneys, but also to the judges, giving advice how to write good briefs, how to write good opinions. And I think that so, some judges take that to heart and, and try to make it very clear what the issue is that the opinion will decide, how's the issue resolved, and to put all that up front and in the back and in the middle so, so that it becomes very difficult not to understand how the decision came out. Other judges, for whatever reason, are not necessarily as interested in in making it easy to figure out what a decision has decided. And so I think that initial responsibility rests with the judges in trying to make these decisions as clear as possible, recognizing that members of the general public, not only legal professionals, but journalists, members of the general public, will have access to the opinions. And, and then secondly I think it is important for news publications to link to the decisions themselves in in their articles where they're available online to allow people to be able to see for themselves what the decision says in addition to having the reporters take on it uh, I think that that is is very valuable and and then finally and and perhaps most importantly on the reporting end just to try your best to make sure that you've Given the entire decision, careful attention, and and that you understand it. What one thing that I have heard legal journalists say again and again, as as our time in the internet age grows, is is how much their job has changed for, from the time where a Linda greenhouse or even an Adam Liptak early in his career could get an opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court, could sit down, read it from cover to cover call on the phone relevant law professors and maybe even the, the attorneys for the parties and get this sort of full and complete understanding of of what the decision means before they had to write and turn in their article that would appear in the print edition of the next day's newspaper. Now what we see, and, and this is not a criticism, but, but uh, because of the internet, maybe half an hour at, at most will go by before there is ha- mm-hmm. are half a dozen articles about a, a decision. Yeah,
0: and you tweet about it first. Right,
1: right. and in those instances, it, it is much more difficult. And so, like you said, with, with the Obamacare decision, where there, there was a particular judge who whose separate writing held the answer, or, or for example, to, to go back a number of years, the, the Bush v. Gore case, which was decided by a per mm-hmm. opinion of the court, where, where the reporter of decisions does not issue a syllabus, and and so this huge opinion came out that, uh, late at night, that that had no summary that preceded it. Uh, th- those those are very difficult for reporters to come to the right answer on. But but, but like you said, that was an amazing uh, result for SCOTUS Blog to uh, be pointing out the errors in the initial reporting on the Obamacare decision, and uh, and they got justifiable credit and attention as a result.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because I remember I was driving to work on Lake Shore Drive, and I had NPR on, and they broke in with the story. And I remember, I'm like, "This doesn't make sense." I wish I could look at my phone and see what Skilda's blog is saying because I know they would get. So we count on uh, you lawyers who write the blogs to to help us oftentimes. And now, and you were talking about how uh, judges write the opinions in the seminars you go to. I'm curious: Are there some appellate judges you look forward to reading their opinions when they are the ones in writing, and some you're like? Are there some judges you like better than others in terms of how they write?
1: Well, well absolutely is is the short answer to that question. Yeah. And uh, I, I did uh, publish an article in the. Uh, Council of Appellate Lawyers' publication called Appellate Issues for for the ABA. That included a list of my, uh, sort of the the baker's dozen of my favorite appellate judge writers on the federal bench. And a number of excellent writers have joined the the federal appellate ranks over the past years as well. So so I don't know if that list uh, would necessarily stay the same today, there would definitely be some changes in it because some of them have uh, moved on to, to other positions. But yes, and, and uh, one longtime favorite uh, to, to whose opinions I've linked recently on my blog is Frank Easterbrook. He's someone who's been a federal appellate judge for many, many years. But he can usually be counted on to, to write crisp, interesting opinions that discuss the law in a way that is, to, to me, easily accessible, even if it's an area that, that I don't necessarily practice in. And uh, and oftentimes, as an advocate, if I need to explain an area of a lo- of the law in a brief that, uh, to judges who may not be familiar with it, I will try to look for an opinion either by him or, or by some of these other judges on my list to see if I can find something that they've written that, that helps to explain the point. Because uh, oftentimes, their decisions contain these very useful passages uh, that, that can be used to help other judges understand areas of the law that they might not be familiar with.
0: Interesting. I'm guessing when you started your blog, you were thinking it would be good for business development, right? In addition to you just enjoy it.
1: I'm not sure if if business development was ever the main focus of it as opposed to trying to develop something in the community of people interested in the okay. subject the same way that appellate Twitter has evolved. But, but yes, uh, there have been mm-hmm. some Helpful business development opportunities that have arisen out of it. Uh, e- even though, at the same time, I think that anybody looking to compare whether the effort put into the blog justifies the business opportunities generated from it uh, would would ultimately conclude that that maybe it was not uh, the best way to do that as, as compared to that monthly appellate column that I was referring to earlier that, that I think has helped establish me as an appellate authority in the geographic region where I practice, which has been invaluable.
0: Well, so many people, though, especially back in 2002, or maybe, maybe a little after that, but I'm, I'm sure you remember when everybody wanted to have a law blog, B-L-A-W-G, um, and some of those were really good, but many of them kind of were Right, because <laughs> it was. Sometimes I think lawyers have a real disconnect on offering something that's useful to people as opposed to just self promotion. Right, that's been a problem over and maybe not a problem. That's why it doesn't work. I think over and over and over. I'm curious. Do you ever talk to lawyer friends who want a blog? And do you ever just have to say, "Listen, you know, if you put in well, my firm and I, it's no, no one cares." Give them something useful. Do you ever have those conversations or give advice on how to have a blog that's useful for your audience and for you? Right.
1: I think that you're right, that to the extent somebody's blog becomes entirely self-promotional, that it tends to be useless in in terms of having others be interested in it. And so I, I think that it can be useful in terms of demonstrating that you have a knowledge and maybe even a mastery of a particular subject matter area and and that those are the types of blogs that can be very successful, like there's one called the Patents O blog uh, that that covers patents mm-hmm. law decisions and uh, and the author of that blog, you know you have no doubt when you read that blog that that this person who's now a uh, a law professor, he had been a practicing lawyer before then uh, is is someone who really understands this area of the law. And similarly, you know, I think I think that people who read my blog can appreciate that uh, the appellate areas is, is one that I focus my attention on professionally. But uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, if if you just produce a blog that's talking about you know here's the types of cases that I'm handling, and here's the results that I'm getting, it it won't be something that people are very interested in. And and yet nevertheless, uh, speaking with respect to my blog in particular, it never has failed to surprise me as to who is following it. And so I remember in the early years, there was a decision handed down by the Sixth Circuit one day that that involved a pro se litigant's appeal of of an order from a district court that, that had rejected the litigant's claim that he had a constitutional right to visit his public library, without wearing shoes. And so I remember wanting to blog about this as soon as I saw the opinion and, and, and thinking to myself, just inside my own mind, uh, there are a couple of ways I could title this post. Like, you know, you thought you've seen the most absurd claim for a constitutional right ever, you know, take a look at this case. But but that, that at the same time seemed a little bit mean and cruel perhaps. Uh, so, so I thought instead, I'll just try to be clever and, and and have the blog post be no shirt, no shoes, no literature. And, and so I put up a post under that title. And maybe 30 minutes later, the, the individual whose case that was is emailing me to, to tell me that, that's, uh, to send me the link to his website where my readers could access the, the briefs that had been filed in the case. And I felt to myself, as soon as I got that email, you know, thank goodness I had not cruelly ridiculed this case because then the guy either would not be sending me an email or if he was emailing me, he'd be very upset with uh, with what I had written. And so, uh, you know, that, that again is another goal of mine is, is to uh, try to make it interesting, but not, uh, you know, biting sarcasm necessarily.
0: And is that something you feel like you've had to become more attuned to? Cause I feel like the world is just more attuned to that now than perhaps we were in 2002.
1: I, I think that that's right. Uh, you know, it's, it's something I've tried to live by as part of that guiding principle I mentioned earlier of, of not making yeah. people think less of me than, than before they encountered the blog. Uh, uh-huh. but, but even yesterday, uh, you know, I, I linked to a decision from the Eighth Circuit where this three-judge panel had rejected an argument that, that uh, a, a transgender inmate should be referred to by the inmates' preferred pronouns. And and the title to that post that I had, if, if I recall correctly, was something al- along the lines of another appellate court is not interested in, in a litigant's preferred pronouns. Because if, a few months ago, mm-hmm. the Fifth Circuit had essentially said the same thing in an opinion. Uh, it was going to use the pronouns of an inmate's, uh, based upon the inmate's gender assigned at birth, as opposed to uh, Using the the preferred pronouns of the transgender inmate at this time, and uh, and I was concerned that uh, that somebody might think that even that title uh, was, was somewhat controversial by by uh, saying what it said. But uh, fortunately, it was not received that way, uh, and uh, and it did end up on, on Twitter at least, resulting in a conversation as to whether courts should give more deference to using someone's preferred pronouns or not. Uh, which which is obviously still a raging topic these days
0: I, I'm curious is there a circuit split on that yet
1: I I don't know if if uh, if that turns out to be an actual issue of of law that that's uh, that the case presents as opposed to perhaps uh, a, an issue of preferred behavior towards other people in in, in terms of uh dealing with individuals uh, but but my understanding is that uh, at least at the Supreme Court level, and this was something somebody pointed out in one of the tweets that followed the discussion that my initial tweet caused, was to point out that, uh, that in the Gavin Grimm case that was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, several conservative Christian organizations had attempted to file amicus briefs that used a different gender than the title of the case in front of the Supreme Court used. And and the clerk of the Supreme Court, through a deputy clerk, wrote letters to those attorneys that sought to file those briefs saying that you can't change the caption of this case from what it is, which was using Mm -hmm. the the individual's preferred pronouns.
0: I think that might be a story for us. Very interesting. Um, that's an example of how useful uh, your knowledge is. And on that note, that's everything I wanted to ask you, Howard. Would you like to add anything else?
1: Well, I just wanted to say that, that uh, the ABA Journal blog, if I could call it a blog, is is itself a wonderful sure. resource. And you. you know, just just as you were so kind as to say uh, how helpful my blog can be from time to time. Uh, I have a lot of admiration for, for the work that you and your colleagues there do on, on that blog, day in and day out. And I wanted to just congratulate you guys on continuing to have a wonderful effort that, that is incredibly useful. And I, I do appreciate every time that, that someone throws in a hat tip to me. But uh, but I just wanted to say, you know, that that's a great resource and and one that I look at uh, regularly to see what's going on.
0: Well, thank you so much, and thank you for joining us. I I really appreciate it. And listeners, thank you for joining us too. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.